Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Leadership Mindset. I'm your host, Yolanda Gonzalez, former administrative fellow and current administrative director at Mass General Hospital, located in Boston, Massachusetts. I invite you to join me as I engage with leaders in various roles across the healthcare field to gain real-life insights into their work challenges, the skills that have helped them succeed, and advice on how to get started if this is a path for you. So what are you waiting for? Let's start the journey today. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Leadership Mindset. My name is Yolanda Gonzalez, and today I am so excited to be here with Tony James. Tony James currently serves as a Senior Vice President for Clinical Mergers and Acquisitions, Strategic Partnerships and Network Development at Mass General Brigham. I first met Tony when I was interviewing for an administrative fellowship at Mass General and have gotten to know him more and more over the years. He's definitely someone I go to for advice and I'm really excited to have him on the show today to talk to us about the importance of leading through influence. But Tony, before we jump in, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you into your current position? Sure. Um, so my current position is one that's not typical, um, and my path here wasn't typical either. I guess we call network development, which is really the ability to create clinical collaborations of all types between, um, in this case, an academic uh, system, um, but before that, an academic medical center, and community hospitals and community health systems and physician groups. And so that's everything from sending a doctor out to do a talk to uh, acquiring an, an organization, a physician group, um, and the implementation of, of that as you onboard them. Um, in terms of how I got here, uh, I had gone to the Kennedy School and gotten a degree in public policy, knew I wanted to do something in healthcare, wound up working initially at um, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield in New York, working for the brother of my thesis advisor. Um, and then wanted to do, see some more on the provider side of the world, but have um, greater perspective. So I wound up doing healthcare consulting, management consulting for probably about six years, and then moved into general practice consulting for another five years. Um, and at the, as I was doing that, I, you know, most people consulting as a, as a, a difficult lifestyle because we travel a lot, and that was getting a little bit old. Um, and also I was looking for the ability to follow projects all the way through, not just recommend good ideas, but see if they could be implemented um, successfully and then managed um, as they were came to fruition and, and maturation. So that's sort of how I um, sort of got here. I, you know, classic um, networking interviews. Um, there was no like network development did not exist. At Mass General, when I uh, came to talk to um, the the then the then president, um, and so um, they had a need; they wanted to do some of this, but didn't have anybody who could who could manage it or lead it. So they asked me to come in and essentially figure it out. It helped that I had had some entrepreneurial activity. In my background: I had worked for a startup. Uh, I worked for probably three different startups that, um, in in between and during my consulting careers. Um, and so I had some ability to come in and say, okay, I've just got to figure this out. Um, so that's, that's the meandering story of how I got to where I am and what I do. You talked about this a little bit in terms of how consulting shaped your approach here. Um, but I'm, I imagine, you know, in, in consulting, the way I picture it is you go in and you do a project or, or you help get something set up and then, and then you, you leave, right? So how was that transition 
to an academic medical center setting? And how did you find yourself adjusting based on your prior experience? I think two things. I mean, as a consultant, uh, the business of consultancy, it's not just to advise, but actually, as you go more and more up the ranks, is to sell more and more engagements with a client. So it's not one and done. Ideally, that first project is a gateway to multiple projects over multiple years. And they don't have to necessarily be consecutive. Um, but that's when you are a partner in a consulting firm, which is what I was in a couple of firms. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to sell what they call add-on engagements. Um, and those engagements will be sometimes strategy, sometimes operations, sometimes technology, or whatever your consulting firm focuses on. Um, uh, those are sort of the dis disciplines that I worked around. Um, but the other piece of which I sort of uh, is in my background, but I didn't make it explicit. One of the, the last consulting roles I had was an internal consulting role at Fidelity Investments, which is, as, as people know, a very big, uh, very diverse organization. And they didn't like paying for external consultants. And so they had a small team of internal consultants. And it was a bunch of folks. I got introduced to that through people I'd worked with um, in other consulting firms. And so that gave me, uh, but that was between that experience and the fact that I had consulted to a bunch of academic medical centers in my healthcare portion of my career, it helped me walk into what's a big complex organization um, and be able to figure out how to, um, I'll just say add value. Um, and because, you know, I, with, with a completely new role in an organization as old as Mass General, um, which um, at the time was, well, it was a, more than a 200-year-old academic, uh, uh, academic hospital. Um, people were like, who are you and what are you going to do? Like, why, is this, why should I spend any time with you I, when I could be seeing patients or doing research or any of the other things that are more interesting to me? And so um, one of you things you learn as, as you walk into a consultant, as a consultant, if you stay at any period of time, is how to understand an organization and culture fairly quickly and how to hopefully connect with um, your client and, and the other leaders in the organization such that you can be effective in helping them solve their problems. Um, what I was being asked to do was solve a problem which was create some relationships for us um, out in the community because that's not something we historically have done. Um, it certainly haven't done in any concerted fashion. Certainly doctors you know, always have been managing referrals from other physicians. But this was also managed in the institutional level relationships would support that as more and more community hospitals employed physicians and wanted to not just have a piecemeal approach, but wanted to have a sort of more integrated and um, broader spectrum approach with uh, a relationship with a tertiary institution, which can then help them be more successful at serving their patients locally. Mm. And as you're walking through your career, it's fascinating. You've worked in a number of different organizations. You've worked in a variety of, of settings, whether that's consulting, whether that's in academic hospitals. Um, and I'm sure you've seen a number of different leaders in, during that time. So I am curious to hear from you. What skill sets have you seen leaders possess that have led them to become successful in their roles and have allowed them to you know, create that influence to make change? Well, I, I think it, it varies because um, the kind of leader you need in a, a, a bootstrap startup is definitely, is very different than the kind of leader you need in a very established large corporation. And it's actually difficult for the former to easily evolve into the latter and vice versa. 
Um, so I, I think there is, uh, and, and this is not, not tried and not new. I think you have to be authentic um, because people can sense that lack of authenticity and probably are saying, eh, not so much. Um, I think you have to be able to be, as a leader, particularly at the top of the organization, strategic to be able to think into the future. You know, the classic line of you want to go to where the puck is going to be, not where you are, is part of what you have to be thoughtful about. Because you just consume with today and tomorrow. If there's something, you know, a year down the road that will dramatically alter your business, you need to be prepared for that. Um, you have to be very good at delegating because you can't do everything. Um, and in that, you have to trust um, the people you're delegating to uh, pretty much implicit, not fully implicitly, but very implicitly, and let them um, really exceed to the top of their ability. I think leaders who get threatened by their, um, their, their teams or their juniors are not leaders who can be successful over the long haul. Um, I think you get the most out of people when you give them the sort of the freedom to grow and develop and express themselves. Um, and, you know, frankly, the stronger team you have, the more you can do, the more that can be done for the organization. Um, I think the other characters I've seen of the really best leaders is ones who can sublimate their egos. Um, so they don't have to get credit for everything. Um, and they recognize this, and I think I saw this probably most at, at Mass General, um, probably because of its history. When you walk into the original hospital where I was fortunate to work uh, and had an office there for a number of years, or even just coming to a meeting, you get a sense that you are a small piece of history. Now, if you start, a dot, you start your own company, you are the history, mm -hmm. right? And so that's a very different dynamic. But still, if you need to take credit for everything, um, not everybody's going to want to do that and you will lose the best people because they want to get appropriate credit for what they do and supporting whatever the organization is about. So, I mean, there's a lot of other stuff that, you, you know, obviously there's skills you need to have. Um, mm -hmm. I just taught a course, um, uh, a master's level course where we talked about the skill sets for executive leaders. Um, and so there are a number of things you sort of want to check the box. But, you know, we had a number of um, C-suite leaders um, as guest lecturers. And, and these are the things that we heard over and over again as they talked about their different journeys, whether it be position leaders, um, you know, uh, people who are coming from the payer side, people who are coming from other industries. Um, these are some of the things that we heard that at least resonated pretty much with me um, when, uh, when I think about this question. Can I dive into one of the, one of the ones that you mentioned, which is sure. authenticity? You know, I think... Yeah. I guess, how do authentic people come across? What is it that they do that makes them seem authentic? Because, you know, when I think about delegating, you know, you can, okay, you, uh, I think there's tangible action steps you can take to kind of improve that. And I, yeah. when it comes to authenticity, I think that's kind of linked to kind of who you are, but I, I don't know, how do you pick up on authenticity? I, I think it is um, uh, knowing yourself enough and being able to show part of, not all of yourself, but enough of yourself in the work environment, so people have a sense that um, um, of who you truly are, and that they can understand you. I think people struggle when they don't, when when leaders are very inconsistent, um, and you know, you can say, "Oh, I'm keeping people on their toes. I keep them guessing." Nobody likes to live in that dynamic, and so the best people won't stay because they're like, "Wait a minute, you know, yesterday you said it was A, today it's, you said it was Z, tomorrow you say it's A again." 
um, tomorrow, next day it's why. Um, and I think so it is being, um, knowing yourself enough and being able to bring that to what you're doing. And so we all have our own insecurities. We all have, you know, separation from work from home. You can do that. And I'm not saying you bring all your hobbies into work. That's not really that either. It is really um, trying to be all there um, and be engaged. And part of it is can be, if you're not doing something, if you're doing something you don't really like, it's harder to do that than it's something that you really are uh, engaged with and passionate. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I've always said um, about most of my jobs, and certainly um, uh, you know, all the time I spent at Mass General, Mass General Brigham, you know, this is not, these are not jobs that I wake up going, man, I don't want to go to work, man. I can't believe I have to drag myself. That, that's never an issue. And so in some ways that, and I've worked in places where I'm like, oh, man, this is, I can do it. Yeah, I can do these other jobs, but um, it didn't click sort of that alignment of myself, what my values, what's important to me, what the organization is and about is really, um, that's where I, I feel sort of the most authentic. And I've had that at other points um, with other jobs in my career. This isn't the only one, um, but the ones that I haven't liked um, are probably the ones where those, that alignment has been less pronounced. Hmm. I think that's why they always say culture is so important within an organization. Like when you go to yep. an interview, it's not just them interviewing you, it's you interviewing the organization and oh, it, a place that you can be like authentic and right. And I actually thought about that the other day. I was like, I actually like going to work. I was talking to a group of like some of my other friends and other fields, one of them being consulting. And it's just interesting because I'm like, I mean, I know every job has its like you know, the good and the bad, you're not going to have the perfect job. But for the most part, I really enjoy being part of this environment. And it's really because of the people that you are surrounded with. Well, but we make that culture. I mean, yes, the culture has been there for a long time in this case, but the people make the culture. And so how do you create a culture that is, um, uh, particularly as a leader, how do you make the culture that is aligned with the organ- where the organization is trying to go and the values you bring to that? Are, are important. And so I think I, I try to be aware of that, you know, as I am working with, you know, both my organization and my job, I work with lots of other organizations, recognizing I am always representing that, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that the organization, its values, its culture, um, and trying to be thoughtful about what that means and how that plays through. Um, you know, particularly what I do is often very delicate and sensitive just because we're engaging in a set of negotiations and relationships with people who were mostly aligned, but not completely aligned. And sometimes it's um, uh, small things. We were um, in a discussion with an organization from another state about them uh, you know, trying to create a joint venture or, or acquire them. And things have been going really well. We had had a, a long track record of working together at a, at a lower level. And then one negotiation session, things just completely went off the rails. And we all were sort of shocked and we said, okay, we'll talk again you know, next week or whatever the next meeting was. And um, we're trying to figure out what was wrong. We realized it was the culture of that state around whatever the issue was, was very different. And so we were using the same words, but we had very different meaning. And, um, and we we're all speaking English. So we we're all speaking the same language. So once both sides realized, oh, we think X means Z and they thought it meant B. And we're like, okay, now that we can translate, we can get back to that discussion. 
but again, it, it really does um, uh, mean you really do have to understand and be thoughtful about not only what you're saying, but where folks are coming from and how they're hearing it. Definitely. That sounds like even, um, I mean, I mean, I would even say that sometimes we may uh, face that within our own system sometime too, right? Oh, sure. Like just getting that definitions and, and um, alignment with one well, another. Well, I think that's true. And, and I remember one of our senior leaders talking about sort of any group of people create their own norms. Right, um, and there even within a larger organization, there's a series of subgroupings, and so yes, you have to be aware of that, and you have to think about how you communicate with things that um, when you're in an organization across the organization, so that people all are understanding the messages and the directions and what's going on, um, so they get to that common common culture and that common language. Hmm. No, uh, definitely. And, and I think, you know, some of the things that have come up in our conversation um, it really reinforce this idea of uh, leading through through influence. Right. And so I guess it, when you think about influence, can you tell me a little bit about how you define that and why it's so important? The ability to try to achieve a goal or an aim where you have to work with another party um, who you do not have formal uh, positional uh, uh, dominion over. Um, so you can't just say, the, here's the example that where I first learned this concept, or first was really exposed to this concept in a formal way. This was in a, in a poli-sci class talking about um, presidential power. Um, and the example was used where Harry Truman talking about Dwight Eisenhower. For those who people don't know Dwight Eisenhower beyond, before he was president, he was the general who led the Allied armies uh, during World War II. And so uh, uh, General Eisenhower um, you know, could say, you know, do this and anybody in that chain of command would do that. And Truman having been a state senator and then uh, I, think, uh, I think he was in the house before he became uh, vice president and president, uh, had, you know, basically said, when Eisenhower gets to be president, he's gonna have to, uh, adapt, this is a nicer version of what he said, um, to the fact you can't just tell a senator or a congressman or anybody what to do. And in a political environment, you have to persuade, you have to convince. Um, and so it is that persuasion, and I'm not saying that in a negative way, um, and that is about getting people's interests aligned or understanding what their interests are and figuring out a way to help them achieve some of their goals so that the mutual goal can be achieved. And it is really something you can do without, again, that positional, that formalized hierarchical, you know, I'm the boss, you do it because I tell you to. Um, it is, you're having to convince people who are peers or potentially uh, senior or junior to you to do something that, you know, may not have been on their plan for that day or that week or that month. Um, but you have to make sure that they understand it is beneficial to the whole, the whole and then how do you create structures to do that when people can agree with you in a meeting and as soon as they get out of that meeting they get into consumed by everything else how do you keep that momentum rolling such that you can uh, achieve a goal that is again mutually beneficial in order to build that influence in a way that is not perceived by others as like oh they're they're just trying to get ahead right um what are ways that people can build that level of trust? Like, how do you how do you build persuasion with others? Yeah, I think you have to come into it, and you come into it at different points at different places in your career, right? 
when you're early on or more junior, um, I think you have to be seen as someone who is credible, someone who can, um, uh, someone who can bring to bear um, data, facts, tools, analyses um, um, that help address the, the challenge that create the solution. Um, and then I think you have to be able to create mechanisms to sell that. And some of it is just, you know, is it a series of meetings where you discuss these issues? Influence is just a tool. There are other things that get put together to get stuff done, obviously, right? Influence is how do you push things forward when you don't have a positional power? Um, but I think it is um, building that um, group of uh, folks who can get on board with that. And I'm not going to call that networking because it's not networking per se, although that can help beforehand and maybe afterwards. But it's really, um, uh, so I think at that level, it's, it's, it's um, your ability to influence is around how are you seen as a trusted source who can bring um, uh, pieces, something to the party. As you move into sort of your middle level career, it is the ability to um, not just be the person who gives the data, but you can be working with senior leadership around the issue and being a convener, being a facilitator. Um, but it's not just facilitation empty of content. I think part of being influenced is you have to have some content. Now, when I'm talking to a cardiac surgeon, I'm not a surgeon, I'm not a physician, but I can bring content to that discussion to help them understand how we can help them achieve their, their aims or goals, whatever they, they may be. And then as you move further up, it is the ability to do it at a organizational level. So you've got your organization on board, you're trying to influence another organization um, to do that as well. And it's a, a little bit different set of skills at, at that point, because you, you have to work with, you know, it's almost more top down at that point. So where you're going from your organizational leadership to the other organization and trying to make sure that leadership team can get on board. Then you can help disseminate it a bit depending on the dynamic. Um, but I think there, are, I would say the first couple of steps are more internal and then you begin to work externally. Um, you know, if you get up to that level and that's how you're trying to get things done. And how have you continued to, for yourself, develop these skills, whether it be influence or whether it just be leadership skills in general? I heard that, uh, I think you mentioned earlier, you, you recently led this course um, for executives. So I imagine that's one way, but like, what are other ways that you're, you know, building your... Well, I mean, you know, actually the teaching this course was interesting because I hadn't been in an academic setting since I finished graduate school a long time ago. Um, so I learned from the other speakers a little bit. And obviously we did some bunch of research to, to pull together the classes. I think I have learned a lot from um, both formalized um, uh, coursework. Uh, you know, uh, going back to graduate school, I think the single most important course I took in many ways was negotiations. Being able to think about this in a logical uh, way, understand how to do this. There is skill in this, it's not just an art. Um, and um, so that was pretty, that was important then. Um, you know, subsequently, I think there have been certainly certain, um, uh, you know, executive leadership classes we have taken, you know, both internal and external to the organization, but as important, watching and learning from 
senior executives, both in my organization and other organizations who are really good at this. Mm -hmm. And also watching people who are not good at that saying, probably don't want to do that. Right. Um, and I think you learn, you know, I know I learn more from my own failures than the things I do well, because I've done well. It's like, okay, that was easy. If it didn't go well, then it's like, well, what didn't go right? And how do I make sure that, that we do it better next time? But I, I do think at a certain level, um, if you're fortunate, you, you can be, um, you can find people who are really strong um, leaders and, um, and learn, you know, a little bit by osmosis um, and hopefully a little bit in terms of more direct observation. Mm. That's something that <clears throat> uh, Jeff Davis, who was our former um, senior vice president for human resources here, I remember he told me when I first started the fellowship, it's really important for you to learn from your own mistakes, but it's going to be more important for you to learn from others' mistakes as well. Um, and so I guess one of the questions I have is what, um, and it doesn't have to be a mistake, right? But what, what is something that you've observed in other leaders that you've said, oh, like I've seen that and that's, it, it impacts your leadership style? I think, you know, there are a few things. One is, not being able to step outside of your position, right? We all get focused on our day-to-day, -day, our organization, not understanding where other people are coming from or what they're doing. And sometimes you just can't conceive of that, right? And that's when somebody surprises you with something in the marketplace. How could they have done that? Um, it's because you were just plugging along and you didn't have a bigger, you couldn't step up and, and think at that more strategic level or you, so it's how are you gathering intelligence? How are you, and expanding your perspective and saying, just not, you know, my, my narrow myopic view is the only view. Um, I think it is, you have to be able to listen to people um, and not just either, you know, um, be distracted or um, think you know the answer. And people will surprise you. You, you, you know, they all have different perspectives they can bring in different viewpoints. That's why we always value, that's one of the reasons we value diversity there's, there's multiple ways to look at any problem, right? You know, one of the analogies we all, I, I use a lot is sort of the blind person, the elephant. You know, um, you may, you may if you only hold on to the tusk, you would describe it very differently than if you're holding on to the foot, all right, or touching the tail. And um, I think we can often get caught in our own, you know, schemas and our own silos. Um, I think, um, you know, the ability to, um, uh, and we talked a little bit, but the, the need to win and, and not be able to share is uh, something where people get um, into problems sometimes because you can maximize um, and sort of you, if you apply game theory, if it's a single iteration encounter, you know, it makes sense to maximize. If there are multiple encounters, then you have to think about how you um, share and how that makes it work. So that's a that's a, a piece I've seen uh, just generically folks sort of miss the boat. Mm -hmm. And the other is sort of managing, you know, uh, not understanding the culture of where you're, particularly if you're new, you're coming into. Um, and, um, and if you misread the culture, you can completely misstep and you likely, you may not survive. Two questions for you, just based yep. on what you said. So, um, Going back to uh, what you said about misreading culture, how do you assess culture when you go into an organization? 
Um, it's, that's a great question. Um, I think it is, um, you are looking at their ability to, um, how, how, how inclusive they are. Um, and by that, I mean, are you only talking to the senior leader or does he or she bring other people into that discussion, right? If, if, if it is completely unitary, um, that's a dynamic, um, but it probably has, you know, may work for a while. Um, I think it's trying to get an understanding of how they manage um, various processes. And so we, when we are um, working with an organization, we have sort of um, uh, assessment tools to figure out how ready they are to implement a program and work with us. And so, you know, it is um, a lot of trying to talk to a range of people in the organization, not just the senior people, but also the people who actually do the work and understand how things can go. Um, what are their processes for addressing mistakes? Uh, you know, do they have a just, just cultural approach or is it, is it a more punitive approach? Um, because those dynamics are really important to be understood um, because you can put your personnel at risk if you're going into an organization that has a very different approach to you know, any of those issues than you do. Um, and your people will not be happy and you know, we'll let you know, um, either by being, you know, saying, I'm not gonna do this anymore or leaving, which is the other way of saying, I'm not gonna do this anymore. Um, or um, you know, bad mouthing, whatever the, the initiative is. Um, but I think to the extent that you, and it's not, you know, when you're a consultant, you could ask a lot of questions because you're getting paid to do that thing. Um, you have to be a little more subtle, but, um, uh, but there are some basic questions you have to ask. And, you know, um, and so there is an ability to do some kind of due diligence around another relationship or another culture as you're walking in. And you can figure out what are the most important things to your organization or, or the endeavor and try to make sure you're testing those at multiple levels uh, uh, as you go through that. And my other question that I wanted to ask was when, you know, say I went up to you and um, I didn't take a negotiations class in undergrad or graduate school. And I was like, I want to learn more about that. Where else could you go to to learn about negotiation and, and how to master that skill if it's not in the classroom? So there are, well, there are a lot of resources. So, um, you know, the, the classic book, Getting a Yes. Um, uh, you know, um, is one source. If you looked at, um, uh, you know, all the major business schools, all the major public policy schools have close classes in negotiations um, as well. Obviously, law schools do too, but you don't need all that stuff from, you know, unless you're going to be in the law. Um, but it's pretty easy to find those kinds of resources. You look at the Harvard Business Review, they've got a ton of articles on this stuff. Um, for example, is just one of many sources. Um, but I think for, for you, we all negotiate all the time. You know, as a child, you negotiate with your parents to get, you know, uh, uh, to stay up a little bit later or to get, you know, uh, extra, you know an extra dessert. Um, but as you move through your career, as you move through your life, you're doing this at, at different points, like, you know, which restaurant are we going to go to dinner at? Like, you know, monks, monks, bunch of friends. How do you decide that? How do you negotiate? You know, we went there last time. Can we go someplace different? Um, but this is actually trying to think about it in a much more, I think, um, strategic uh, way um, so that you can get the outcome you want. It's not just by chance. 
right? Or her, whoever yelled the loudest or whoever's able, whoever was the most recalcitrant, right? And so people couldn't get them to move off that statement. You know, um, I think of um, when you see something like uh, the classic movie, 12 Angry Man about a, like, what was a deadlocked jury and how um, that, that process evolved. Um, you know, how do you work with people and get people, and it's not everybody's gonna get to the same point, but how can you engage in a productive and principled uh, you know, negotiation process is important. So there's just, again, um, you know, it is, it's, not, it's not that it was more important than my accounting or my finance classes, um, but you wind up, I don't use accounting in every meeting I'm in. I use negotiations and no matter what I've been doing in a lot, a lot of situations, it's important that I knew the accounting stuff and I still have to, you know, be able to read a balance sheet and, and, and financial statements. Um, but I just think um, negotiation is seen as a soft skill, and it is, but it's actually really um, uh, helpful for so many things that one winds up doing, at, particularly as you move up the management and leadership ranks. Well, we're getting to our rapid fire questions at okay. the end, and this is where we, um, these are questions just to get to know you a little bit more. You don't have to go yep. super in depth. Uh, but I think they're always fun to go through. So sure. what's something you can share about yourself that most people don't know? Um, well, I, I'm a major history uh, and military history buff. Um, so you know, not something I do as much as I used to, um, but certainly something that, uh, you know, part of, um, I, I like learning about that stuff. What can we find you doing on most days outside of work? Um, you can find me and my wife out uh, with our dogs, um, enjoying you know, wherever we are. Because it, you know, um, the good thing about having a dog is it gets you out and walking, and you experience the world very differently than being in a car or being on a train. Oh. What's your dog's name again? We have two dogs. Uh, they're uh, standard poodles. One is Scarlet, uh, the older one, and the younger one is Childa. Okay. They won't know they got a shout out today. But no, uh, hey, they've already been on the front page of the Boston Globe. So they, oh, they're okay. They're yeah. Uh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> Good for them. Um, what is a book or podcast recommendation you can share? I'll give you two if I can. Okay. Uh, on the podcast recommendation, um, going back to my theme of broadening your perspectives, you know, um, I listen to the BBC. There's a series of podcasts they do. Um, just that perspective on the world, particularly uh, for your domestic audience viewers, uh, listeners, is important. Um, you know, we're not the only ones who do healthcare, and we're certainly not the ones who do healthcare as well as we think we are. And so, having that perspective is really, really important. Um, and so, um, you know, whether it's from the business side, whether it's the cultural side, whether it's just the, the world news. There's this stuff, you know, particularly in this era where you just don't get, um, you don't get as much perspective. And then I guess the other podcast is Ezra Klein from New York Times. He goes very deep on a subject and he has some really smart, uh, really um, perspective insightful um, guests. And so I found that one, um, that, that podcast, and it's not all on the same topic, but it can, it moves you beyond the headlines. Um, and if you really are interested in the subject to really understand what's going on. And the last book I'd the last one I recommend is a book continuing on the Vietnam theme. As I said, I knew, thought I knew a lot about it, 
But then I read The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen, who was a, a child when he had, had to flee Vietnam. Uh, is now a professor, I think, at um, uh, Southern at uh, USC, um, and wrote a book um, about the end of the Vietnam War um, from a Vietnamese perspective. And um, it won the Pulitzer Prize, so it's 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 about some bigger human themes, um, but it also recast something that people here think they know well from a completely different perspective, um, and um, it just helps people, I think. You know, put yourself in the other person's shoes and move beyond what you, the narrative you, the one narrative you heard to understand there are multiple narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, we, we um, that was a fabulous book. We read it in a book club that I'm in. And I think um, people, no matter you know, what their age range was or where they were coming from, um, you know, really got a tremendous amount out of that. Yeah. It goes along to what you were saying earlier, which is uh, one of the things you've observed is making sure that you're not just kind of have this like tunnel vision and and there's multiple perspectives to certain situations. So it's always interesting. I always find it's interesting because the books we read in a way impacts how we think or how we perceive things. So it's always, I mean, that's another way too um, that just kind of came to mind. It's like, you know, that's why I always ask these questions because I think they kind of tie back into that message that you were um, saying during uh, earlier today. And my last question for you is, um, what is the best advice you've received that you can share with our audience today? Um, I, I think I, I probably gave two, one of them already, and this is actually another quote from Truman, um, which is, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit, right? Um, so if you can put your ego aside and just, work to achieve the goal, um, which is hard for most people to do, um, particularly in, in, in any era, but that's important. And I think the other one, which is, I didn't get this right away, um, but then I saw it play out. How you leave an organization is, a, is as important or more important than how you come into an organization. Uh, and so, you know, I think we've all had experiences where, you know, like, I can't wait to quit that job. Right, I want to get out of there, all those dynamics. Well, that's okay. Keep that inside. How you do it, particularly in these industry, any of these industries where um, you know, they're not as big as people think they are. Uh, and I'm always running into people who I knew 25 years ago or 15 years ago or five years ago. Um, and sort of, you know, oh, you're over there or you're doing this or you're, you know. And so um, you have to manage your reputation throughout all those things. And so it's very tempting to sort of have that drop the mic moment and walk out like, you know what, you're gonna run into the person who, who held that mic before you again. And uh, I've seen very senior, very smart people do that. And it's hard when you're you know, at the end of your rope and you want out to do that. But it's, um, you know, you have to keep your eye on the longer prize. Our careers are very long lived. And, you know, I think about most of us get most of our jobs through networking um, at a certain point. You know, I can say that is very true, particularly for senior level jobs. I mean, yes, people talk about headhunters, but how do you get to a headhunter? Somebody networked you to the headhunter, right? Um, and so it is really important that you think that through and understand that um, and um, figure out a way to talk to your close friends if you're frustrated 
um, as you exit, but go out with your head hell high, go out, you know, smiles, cheers, you know, whatever it is, you know, um, that's, I think too often people think I can just um, uh, blow people off. The other example is, you know, people who ghost people during an interview process. You know what, um, again, not that big an industry and that stuff gets remembered. And people are like, you know what, common courtesy would have been, thanks, um, you know, I'm not interested in this time. Great to talk to you. Hope we can see each other, you know, connect in the future. What's that, two sentences? Um, and then people are fine. People remember being disrespected. People remember being treated badly. And it's, uh, you know, it's that line about, you know, I don't remember what you said, but I remember how you made me feel. And so it's not that much of an effort and it will make life work better um, as you go forward. A hundred percent. I think that uh, it, this conversation shows why you're someone that I know I will uh, reach out to you every now and then. I've always really valued the advice that you've given me. So I can't thank you enough for spending um, time with me on the show and giving back to a community of future healthcare administrators and current healthcare administrators who are really eager to just make an impact in the healthcare field. So thank you so much. My pleasure, and I'm glad. Um, uh, hopefully, this is useful for folks. Again, I didn't mean to get on the soapbox at times, but uh, um, you know, I think there's some hard one. Some of those are hard, hard one lesson, uh, and uh, you know, everybody's got to go through their own journey. But um, you can learn from others as you as you go.